Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Instead of allowing big tech to revoke your rights to free speech, why not revoke their rights to your data? Just go to expressvpn.com, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash gold, and you can get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Truebill. $5 here, 10 bucks there, it really adds up. Monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal until you forget about them. So get your subscriptions under control with Truebill. So go right now to truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. Bitcoin is back down below 50,000. In fact, it's below 48,000. As I'm recording this podcast, just after the U.S. stock market closed on Wednesday, Bitcoin is trading at about 47,800. Not only is it falling against the U.S. dollar, it continues to fall against Ethereum. I pointed out the breakout in the Bitcoin price of Ethereum on my last podcast, and Ethereum continues to gain on Bitcoin even as it is slightly lower against the U.S. dollar. Both currencies are down against the dollar, and I think that trend is going to continue And I think the trend of Bitcoin falling against Ether is going to continue for some time as well. In fact, if you look at these exchange-traded funds, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, for example, was down another 8% today. It closed at a 16% discount to its net asset value. You know, for all the hype about the institutional interest in Bitcoin, you certainly don't see it in shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And despite the fact that that trust advertises nonstop on CNBC and other financial outlets, you still have that huge discount. Why isn't all of this advertising resulting in buying? It is. It's just that there's plenty of selling to offset it because I think the institutional money that got in some time ago 
wants out. That's why you've got this big discount. So rather than gaining traction with the institutions, which is what all the Bitcoin pumpers are saying, it's actually losing the momentum it once had. And I think the only reason the institutions were there was because it was free money. They were getting issued shares at GBTC at NAV when the shares were trading at a big premium. And so they were able to mark that profit to market instantaneously but now they're no longer interested in doing it. So the shares are under a lot of pressure. But look at the new Bitcoin futures ETFs. BTF and BITO are the symbols. Those were each down just over 6% today. And they're now down 32% from their highs last month. That's a big drop in under a month. I mean, if Bitcoin is supposed to be this great safe haven, way better than gold, much better store of value, much better inflation hedge, we don't need gold anymore because we got Bitcoin because it's so much safer. It's a much better way to store value. How can it be down 32% in less than a month? I mean, gold is down about 5% in the same time period. That's still a big drop, but it's nothing compared to 32%. In fact, if you look at GBTC, This trust is still down 36% from its high in February. That's 10 months ago. So if Bitcoin is such a great store of value, well, if you try to store your value in the Bitcoin trust, the Grayscale Bitcoin trust 10 months ago, you're down 36% over a 10-month period. People keep wanting to talk about how much Bitcoin is up this year. Yes, it had a great January and February, but what has it done since then? It's gone down. This trust is down 36%. Again, gold is down about 5% over the same 10 months. Yeah, 5% is down, but it's down a lot less than 36%. So I don't know how you can hold Bitcoin out as a superior store of value when over the last 10 months, The Grayscale Trust is down 36% and gold is down 5%. Bitcoin itself is down just over 30% from its high that it hit last month as well. But the reason I want to talk about Bitcoin and crypto today is not because the prices are going down. I mean, I expect that to continue. That's nothing new. What I really want to discuss is the congressional hearings that were held yesterday by the House Financial Services Committee. That one is chaired by Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters. And they brought together, I think it was four or five, I think they're all CEOs of top crypto companies. And the supposed purpose of the hearings is to figure out how best to regulate these companies to best protect the consumer, right? The government is concerned about protecting the consumer when the consumer is investing in cryptocurrencies or using stable coins. And, you know, the biggest irony, if Congress really wanted to protect the consumer, they would just warn the consumer not to get into any of these cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, because everybody is going to lose all their money speculating in these cryptocurrencies. Now, the stable coins are a little bit of a different animal, and I think they're very different from the fiat cryptocurrencies. But if you go on the internet and listen to this hearing, and it was over five hours, complete waste of time as far as I'm concerned, but they basically mixed up stable coins, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. So they really were talking about the whole gamut of what's going on in the crypto space. 
not too much NFTs. In fact, the subject of NFTs got brought up once or twice, but they really didn't go down that road. But the interesting thing about the hearings is, of course, the way all of these crypto executives are trying to butter up Congress really to win them over, to get them to be in the Bitcoin camp, to not view Bitcoin as a threat and to encourage the government to have additional regulation to help make the crypto market safer for the consumer, which of course, it's not safe at all for the consumer because the consumer is going to get wiped out. But you know, one of the ways the congressmen were patting themselves on the back or congresswomen was by talking about how they've already helped make the financial services industry so much better and so much safer through the introduction of government programs and regulation. One such program that came up as a big positive was deposit insurance. And I think this came up in the context of discussing stable coins because one of the guys that was on the panel pointed out that he thought that stable coins were in fact less risky than bank deposits because banks are loaning out the deposits and they could lose them, whereas the stable coins aren't loaning out anything. That's, of course, provided that they're being honest and they're getting audited. You know, with a cryptocurrency like Tether, and there was nobody from Tether who was at the hearing. And in fact, one of the congressmen pointed that out and he was upset because I think they wanted to get somebody from Tether to come down there, but nobody volunteered. And it doesn't surprise me, but who knows how much backing is actually there behind each tether. But assuming that the stable coin that is backed by dollars is in fact 100% reserve and all of the dollars are there, then the statement would be correct. It would be less risky than a bank account if the bank is loaning out those deposits because now you're taking the risk. But of course, Congress pointed out that, hey, we've done something about that because we have these regulations and we have deposit insurance. So we've taken steps to insulate bank depositors from those risks. And they took credit for making the banking system in general more sound and safer from the introduction of deposit insurance. And of course, the opposite is true. The U.S. government made the banking system less safe, less sound, as a result of the introduction of deposit insurance. And that's because before there was an FDIC, when it was buyer beware when it comes to bank accounts, consumers who opened up bank accounts, their primary concern was safety. Interest was secondary. Yes, you wanted to earn interest, but you didn't want to lose your principal. So safety was the most important factor. Banks knew this. And so banks prided themselves on how safe they were. They built their reputations around safety. And so you had all of these banks competing for deposits based on which bank was the soundest, which was the safest bank. And the customers were evaluating the banks who were competing on safety, and they were putting their money in the banks that had the best reputations for safety, right? So safety was a primary concern by both parties in the free market. And as a result of all these banks advertising how safe they were and consumers shopping around for the safest banks, 
we had a safe, sound banking system. In fact, the banking system weathered the Great Depression fantastic. I mean, even though there were some high-profile bank failures, they were few and far between. I think in total, less than 2% of all the bank deposits were lost during the entirety of the Great Depression without any deposit insurance. I mean, think about that, 2%. Americans are going to lose far more than 2% of the value of their bank deposits this year alone due to inflation. And of course, before we had insured bank deposits, when we had sound money and we didn't have any inflation at all because we were on a gold standard, no money was lost due to inflation. In fact, during the years of the Great Depression, Bank deposits gained value because prices came down. So even though 2% of the bank deposits were lost, the 98% that weren't lost had a much greater purchasing power than the 100% before the depression began. So Americans are doing far worse today with their FDIC insured accounts than they did as bank depositors during the worst economic downturn, right? The Great Depression, they did better back then. But Think about the banking system today in the presence of deposit insurance. Do any customers of banks care about the underlying safety of the institution into which they deposit their money? No. Why? Because if the bank fails, the government reimburses the bank for the losses. In fact, the banks don't even have to fail because if they're even in danger of failing, the government will bail them out before they fail. So we don't even need the deposit insurance because the Fed is not even going to let banks fail to the point where they have to draw down that insurance. Now, there are some smaller banks maybe that aren't too big to fail that they do let fail. But in every circumstance, the FDIC has been there. And not only has it covered the insured deposits, it's actually covered every deposit because the FDIC has limits. But in the past, the FDIC decided to cover everybody, right? Because they didn't want anybody getting scared. So they always make everybody whole. So because the government is there guaranteeing all the accounts, the customers don't care about the kind of risks that the institution takes. They only care about the benefits, the interest they can earn, although now they really can't earn any. So they have other factors that they look at, convenience, how many ATMs, what do you charge me for checks or what do you charge for a minimum balance or things like that. But nobody considers safety. And of course, the banks know this. The banks know their customers couldn't give a damn about how much risk they take. So they go out and take a lot of risk. This is called moral hazard. I talk about it a lot, but the government just doesn't understand it. But moral hazard does a lot of damage. The free market is a much better regulator than the government. So if we just got rid of this entire financial services committee, you know, if government got out of financial services completely, we'd have a far sounder and safer financial system because free market regulation does a better job. Here's a situation where the government came into the banks and completely circumvented the good job the free market was doing. The free market had all these banks competing on safety, and then the government came in and destroyed that so that nobody gave a damn about safety, and everybody started behaving far more risky because of the moral hazard implicit in this FDIC insurance program. And I'm sure the same thing is going to happen to the extent that 
the government increases regulation in cryptocurrencies or in particular in these stable coins, they're probably going to end up doing the same type of damage to that industry that they did to the banking industry. When did we decide that free speech was no longer important? What's playing out right now at big tech companies and social media sites sets a dangerous precedent. Look, it doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. Everyone should have the right to express themselves freely. Sadly, the big tech monopolies have instead opted for silencing tactics and censorship. To fight back against big tech's control of the internet, I use ExpressVPN. Ever wonder how those big tech giants make all their money? Well, they do it by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you do online. By building a profile on you and then selling off the data. But when you use ExpressVPN's app on your computer or phone, you've anonymized much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. But what I like most is how easy it is to use. It just takes one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by Business Insider. An added benefit is being able to access content that may be restricted in your area. I just had that experience again. I wanted to watch a football game, but Dish Network that I use in Puerto Rico no longer carries CBS. I can only access CBS through my Optima account that I have at my Connecticut home. But unfortunately, Optima doesn't work in Puerto Rico. But I was able to download the ExpressVPN app directly onto my television set, and that gave me access to the football game. And without ExpressVPN, I would have missed it. So stop supporting big tech's efforts to revoke your freedom of speech. Why not revoke their right to sell your data? So secure your internet with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com gold. That's expressvpn.com gold. E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com gold to get three months free when you use my exclusive link. So go to expressvpn.com slash goal right now to learn more. In fact, one of the biggest ironies here, one of the congressmen was actually complaining about the high costs that his constituents face when they're sending remittances to family members living overseas. And of course, that's one of the big selling points of the stable coins is that they can reduce the costs that Americans now pay with respect to sending these remittances because the banks have these high fees. And this congressman was complaining about these high fees that the banks are charging as if the banks are just greedy corporations sticking it to the little guy, right? And the government is here worried about the little guy trying to protect them. Well, the only reason that banks and other financial institutions have to charge such high fees to send money is because of the government. It's because of the rules and regulations that are being handed down by Congress that are probably born out of that committee that are driving up the costs. In fact, look at this new plan that they have, which is part of the Build Back Better bill, which is going to require all this additional reporting by banks on every single account, all their transactions, if they do an aggregate $10,000 a year. What do you think that's going to do to the cost of using a bank? It's going to drive the costs higher. Who pays those higher costs? The depositor. The customer always pays. So if the government is going to impose all sorts of burdensome regulation, 
KYC, AML, whatever it is, on these money processors, banks, anybody who wants to transfer money, guess who pays for all the regulatory compliance costs? The customer. All those costs have to be built into the price because the bank or the money processing company that is providing this service has to do it at a profit. So it has to be able to charge more to send money than it costs to send the money. And the biggest component of that cost is complying with government regulations. So it's ridiculous to see these congressmen complaining about the high cost of sending money when it's only so expensive because of their regulations. So the solution to this problem is not, oh, we need cryptocurrencies to circumvent these regulations. We need these stable coins. No, the easiest solution, if you really care about bringing down the costs of sending money, then get rid of these rules and regulations that are driving up the cost of sending money. But government will never consider that. They'll never pass a program or regulation that creates harm, and then consider removing that regulation to eliminate the harm. No, it's always pass some regulation, causes a problem. The solution is, okay, now we need more regulation, more rules to try to undo the problems caused by the last set of regulations that we put in. And now they create even more problems. They never consider removing a regulation that obviously does harm. Although in this case, I don't even know if these guys realize how much harm their own regulations are doing because that's how clueless members of Congress are. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But I really think the funniest part about the hearings were all of these executives trying to assure Congress that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were not only not a threat to the U.S. dollar, but actually good for the U.S. dollar. That if you really care about preserving the dollar status as the primary reserve currency, then you really need to support Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which of course completely flies in the face of the entire marketing strategy behind Bitcoin, at least the marketing strategy that they used to have. I mean, they're kind of changing it now, but a lot of people have gotten on board the Bitcoin train, because Bitcoin was going to supplant the U.S. dollar. Bitcoin was going to replace the dollar. It was going to be the new money for the world, money for the digital age. The dollar is flawed. It's a fiat currency. There's an unlimited supply. They keep on printing them. We're going to have hyperinflation. Bitcoin is the solution. Bitcoin is the answer. Bitcoin fixes everything. That's what everybody keeps saying. So Bitcoin has been sold to the hodlers, as a replacement for the dollar. How many people say eventually foreign central banks will be holding Bitcoin as reserves? Bitcoin will be the reserve for their currencies instead of the dollar, right? That's part of the script. But of course, that's the last thing that U.S. congressmen want to hear because they want the dollar to be supreme because they need to spend money and they need the Federal Reserve to create that money. And that money has to have value after the Fed creates it so they can spend it. So the last thing Congress wants is 
anything threatening the dollar's role as the reserve currency. And all these executives know that, which is why they're lying to try to reassure Congress that Bitcoin is not a threat. Even though privately, when they're talking to investors, of course it's a threat. I mean, that's the whole marketing pitch of Bitcoin. But it was funny to listen to how these guys tried to justify the fact that Bitcoin wasn't a threat. So one guy right, actually said, and I forget you know, which executive said this, but he said that the reason that Bitcoin was good for the U.S. dollar was that it would create competition for the dollar and that competition is a good thing. And that since the Federal Reserve has been you know, so reckless and irresponsible and it's printing all this money, we have all this inflation. If people buy Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, that is going to force the Federal Reserve to act more responsibly because it's competing with Bitcoin. So if the American saver has an alternative to the dollar like Bitcoin and the Federal Reserve knows that there's competition and that people aren't just stuck with the dollar, they can go to an alternative, that that will force the Federal Reserve to act more responsibly to keep people from switching to Bitcoin. This is what this guy said, which of course is sheer nonsense because A, Bitcoin is already there. Look at how reckless and irresponsible the Fed has been during these last several years when it comes to money printing and you know 0% interest rates. Bitcoin's been here as an alternative the entire time. In fact, Bitcoin has rallied from pennies of Bitcoin or less when it started up to almost $70,000. And that entire move has not done anything to get the Fed to act less recklessly. The Fed doesn't give a damn about what's happening to Bitcoin. It is printing all the money it wants and it couldn't care less about the fact that people could choose to buy Bitcoin instead of the dollar. So if this huge rally in Bitcoin that we've already had hasn't caused the Fed to act responsibly, why would some future rally in Bitcoin cause the Fed to act responsibly? And in fact, the dollar already has a lot of competition. It doesn't need Bitcoin as another competitor. And by the way, why would Congress want another competitor for the U.S. dollar, right? I mean, if you're the issuer of the dollar, you want as few competitors as you want. I mean, no business wants more competition. I mean, competition might be good for the consumer, but it's not good for the producer. I mean, all producers would just assume be a monopoly if they could. The problem is they can't. Well, the government doesn't want more competition for the dollar. That's its product that it creates, the world reserve currency. And so it doesn't want more competition, but it already has competition. It has competition from the euro, has competition from the yen, has competition from the Chinese yuan, has competition from gold. And in fact, if you look at where the dollar is losing, it is against those other fiat currencies and against gold. If you look at the composition of reserves at foreign central banks, the dollar's dominance is in decline and that is gonna continue. So the dollar's share of global reserve assets is falling. It's falling because foreign central banks are replacing their dollars with euros or with yen or other fiat currencies and with gold. But the one thing that not a single central bank has added to its reserves is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is not the competitor 
for the dollar. It's these other fiat currencies that compete with the dollar and gold. The only thing Bitcoin competes with is Ethereum and 14,000 other cryptocurrencies. That's the competition for Bitcoin, not the U.S. dollar and not gold. Of course, the ultimate irony behind the hearing is that the American public does need an alternative to the U.S. dollar precisely because Congress is spending and borrowing so much money and the Federal Reserve is monetizing all that debt. Supposedly, this committee was there to protect the American public. It's the American public that needs protection, not only from that committee, but from the rest of Congress. But what they don't need is Bitcoin or a stable coin backed by the U.S. dollar. They need a legitimate alternative. They need gold. They need a digital currency backed by gold. They don't need stability to the dollar because the dollar is inherently unstable. The most stable form of money is gold and what the public really needs is a stable coin backed by gold. But of course, that was not a topic of this hearing. Another thing that bothered me about watching all these crypto executives sucking up to Congress was when they were talking about how willing they were to comply with all the KYC and AML requirements and telling the congressman, don't worry, we're going to spy on our customers and we're going to supply all the information to the government so you know exactly what they're doing and where the money is going and where the money came from. Instead of standing up to Congress and pointing out that these laws are a violation of their customers' constitutional rights secured to them under the Fourth Amendment, the right to be secure in their papers and effects against unreasonable searches, their rights to privacy secured by the Ninth Amendment. The Supreme Court has already ruled that one of the unenumerated rights that are retained by the people in the Ninth Amendment is a right to privacy. Well, you have no right to privacy if all of your financial information are just disclosed to the government without probable cause or a court order. Instead, they're happy about these laws and they're bending over backwards to indicate their willingness to comply. Now, I get it. They got to kiss butt in Congress. That's an unfortunate part of this country that private companies have to go up to Capitol Hill and basically beg to be left alone, even though they know they're going to end up getting regulated. They're trying to soften the blow. But if crypto is supposed to be anti-government, pro-freedom, libertarian, yet all of these big CEOs of these crypto companies who may talk the talk when it comes to pitching crypto certainly don't walk the walk when they're testifying before Congress. You know, those subscriptions really add up. And sometimes we don't even notice the monthly subscriptions being deducted from our bank accounts, especially if we no longer even use the service that we're paying for. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need or you simply forgot you subscribed to. On average, people are saving thousands of dollars a year using Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't need right from the app. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. 
It's also great for tracking your spending, especially if you're trying to stay within a budget because it identifies spending that is in excess of amounts that you've typically spent in the past and therefore can help you get control of your spending in the future. So start canceling your unused subscriptions now at Truebill.com gold. That's Truebill.com gold. Go right now, Truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. But it's not just these CEOs who were making this ridiculous assertion. Michael Saylor was basically saying the same thing. I watched him. He was on Yahoo Finance this morning before the market opened talking about those hearings because he watched them too and obviously had a completely different take than the one I did. But he declared that Bitcoin was the winner of these hearings. How Bitcoin won is beyond me. But again, if you're Michael Saylor, Bitcoin always wins. I guess Michael Saylor never heard the expression, trees don't grow to the sky, because he also said that he expects the price of Bitcoin to go up forever. In fact, he just announced today that MicroStrategies just purchased a whole bunch more Bitcoin. I think the average price was around 57000 so they're clearly way underwater on that purchase and I bet they're purchasing more because they kind of have to purchase more because they're there they're supporting the market they're in it for the duration they're going to go down with this ship and of course I would advise anybody who's on the SS micro strategy to abandon ship before it sinks but when Michael Saylor was talking about this he went out of his way to stress that point that Bitcoin is not a threat to the US dollar. And in fact, going back to what these executives said at the hearing, everybody said, we want the dollar to stay as the reserve currency. It deserves to be the reserve currency. And having more stable coins too that are backed by dollars is a way to ensure the dollar's dominance continues because we make it easier for people around the world to use dollars. So everybody was trying to reassure Congress that Bitcoin is no threat to the dollar and profess their love for the dollar. Hey, the U.S. dollar is great. And in fact, now even Michael Saylor is talking about how great the dollar is because he said Bitcoin is not a currency, which I've been saying for a long time. But of course, it's been marketed as a currency. After all, it's a cryptocurrency. But you got Michael Saylor admitting now on television that it's not a currency. He says it's just digital property. Well, then why did they name it a currency if it's not a currency? I mean, they wanted it to be a currency, but it's failed as a currency. So they rebranded it as digital property, even though the word currency is still in the name. But he said that Bitcoin is digital property and therefore it is no threat to the U.S. dollar, which everybody around the world wants. The dollar is great. And this is Michael Saylor talking. He said that the competition to the dollar are other fiat currencies. And he believes other fiat currencies are worse than the dollar and that ultimately the dollar is going to dominate the world. Once we have all these stable coins backed by dollars, everyone all around the world is just going to use U.S. dollars as a currency through stable coins. This is the world according to Michael Saylor. So in other words, he thinks the dollar is going to reign supreme alongside of Bitcoin because the dollar is going to dominate in the currency world Bitcoin is going to dominate as property, right? Because he said that Bitcoin's competition isn't the dollar, it's gold, it's silver, it's other assets. According to Michael Saylor, he said gold is worthless. 
He said it's weak property. Bitcoin is strong property. He said gold is dead. He says that all the gold in the world should be sold. We shouldn't even use it for anything. It is the worst performing asset. He said there's no hope for gold. Get rid of it because Bitcoin is completely replacing the entire market cap of gold, which includes all of the use for gold and jewelry. Apparently, Bitcoin is going to replace gold, not just as property, but as jewelry and electronics. I mean, we're going to use Bitcoin for everything that we now use gold for. Hey, not just gold, silver too. And in fact, he even said Bitcoin is going to replace property, real estate. He thinks that Bitcoin's ultimate market cap is going to be $100 trillion because ultimately it's the only property we need because it's superior to all other forms of property. So the world in the future, according to Michael Saylor, we're all going to be using U.S. dollars no matter where we live. If you're in Europe, if you're in Japan, you're going to be using a stable coin backed by dollars for all of your currency transactions. And then all of your property is just going to be Bitcoin. That's it. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the absurdity of these statements? So nobody needs real estate anymore? We'll just buy Bitcoin instead of buying real estate? Oh, really? How are you going to live in your Bitcoin? What possible shelter can Bitcoin provide? And you certainly can't get rents like you could rent out your real estate. Sailor has basically gone off the deep end, but he is really trying to kowtow to the regulators in reassuring them that Bitcoin is not a threat to the dollar. It's only a threat to gold. The dollar is great. And, you know, if he loves the dollar so much, why not hold it on his balance sheet? The reason he says he has to buy Bitcoin on the MicroStrategy balance sheet is because the dollar is such a horrible currency. It's losing so much value. There's so much inflation. Well, if it's such a horrible currency, why do you want it to dominate the world? Why do you think people all over the world are going to want to use the dollar as a currency if it's so bad? And if Bitcoin isn't a currency, if it's just property, what possible value does that property have? As I said, the value of real estate is you can live in it, you can rent it out, the value of gold is you can make jewelry out of it. You can conduct electricity with it. You can do a lot of things with gold and silver because he basically said silver is worthless too. Bitcoin's going to replace silver. What the hell can you do with Bitcoin? Absolutely nothing. But, you know, the other really crazy thing about this hearing, and I want to talk a little bit more about it, is that really nobody talked about the absurdity of Bitcoin having any value in the first place. I mean, there was one congressman that mentioned you know, it looks like a get-rich-quick scheme. And another guy made a statement about why is artificial scarcity actually scarce? And why does something that's only scarce artificially have value in that scarcity? I mean, they kind of tiptoed around the edges, but there was no real discussion about the fact that these currencies could be completely worthless or most likely are completely worthless and that they're going to go to zero and that everybody is going to lose all their money. Nobody was really worried about that. In fact, one of the issues that seemed to be bothering a lot of the congressmen and women, and they asked several questions about this, had to do with the racial and gender diversity of the people who owned cryptocurrencies and the people who worked at these crypto companies. I mean, why is that relevant at all? I mean, who cares about the racial diversity of the customers and the workers? I mean, first of all, people choose to buy Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. It doesn't matter what their gender is or what their race is. And why should the companies care? What difference does it make? You know, as it just so happens, African-Americans and Latinos 
are more likely to buy Bitcoin than whites. And I didn't even realize that until I heard them talk about the statistics. And then I looked it up and it was true. Blacks are actually more than twice as likely to own Bitcoin than whites. And they're maybe about 50% more likely to own Bitcoin than Hispanics. And I think this is ultimately going to be a big problem in the African-American community. I mean, I think one of the reasons that they're drawn to Bitcoin, not so much that there's more people in that community who are outside the banking system. I don't think people in America who are buying Bitcoin are buying it for banking. They're clearly not. They're buying it to get rich quick. They want to make money. And I think you have more African-Americans that are in dire financial circumstances and they're willing to throw up a Hail Mary. And maybe you have more people in that community that don't understand finance or economics to the point where they're able to be conned into this pyramid scheme. And so it's unfortunate that more African-Americans are gambling and are going to lose on Bitcoin because we already have a pretty big divide when it comes to net worth between blacks and whites. And to the extent that blacks end up losing a lot more money proportionally in Bitcoin than whites, then you're just going to widen that divide. I mean, there's a lot of people who think that this is the way to close it, right? Hey, load up on Bitcoin. We're all going to get rich. And this is the way that African-Americans can gain on white Americans by having more money in Bitcoin. And this is going to make them richer. Of course, it's going to backfire and make them poorer. But, you know, this congresswoman or several of them who are asking about the racial and demographic distribution. I mean, all these CEOs have said, yes, we're going to share the information. We'll send you a list. I mean, one of them said they, she wanted to make sure that the diversity of the company employees and the executives match the diversity of the customers. Why? Who cares? I mean, so if 30% of your customers are African-American, then 30% of your employees have to also be African-American? I mean, how racist is that? I mean, do these people not understand the racist nature of what they're saying? Race should be neutral, right? If you're somebody who's not a racist, then none of this matters, right? You don't look at your customers based on what their ethnicity is, right? If you're not a sexist, then you don't care whether your customers are male or female. You just treat them all the same. But all these congressmen seem to care about is the race and the gender of the customers and the workers. But look, the businesses are going to hire the best people for the job. Doesn't matter what their race is. Doesn't matter what their gender is. So just leave it at that. Why not trust the companies to hire the best people? Do you want companies to have the most diverse workforce or the best workforce. Obviously, the best workforce delivers more value to the customers, right? If you care about the customers, you want the best workforce serving them regardless of the composition when it comes to gender and race. Now, if you're saying that, no, no, we don't like the composition of your workers, we want to force you to hire people of specific races and specific genders, that's an admission that people of those races and genders are not really the best qualified and you want to force companies to hire them anyway, even though there are other people who are more qualified that didn't fall into those categories. I would be offended too if I was in one of those categories myself in thinking that, hey, the only way that we can get women or African-Americans to get jobs 
is if the government forces employers to hire them, even though they don't want to. Because if an employer doesn't want to hire somebody, it's because they're not the best person for the job. They always want to hire the best person. And a lot of times I hear these congressmen trying to say that, well, you know, diversity is good for businesses. If their workers are diverse, they'll make more profits. Well, if that's the case, then businesses will diversify on their own. You never have to force a business to do what's in its own good. It's going to do what's in its own good on its own. The fact that you have to force a business to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do means it's not in the best interest of that company because if it was, they wouldn't need force. They would do it voluntarily. Now, of course, when it comes to customers, why should a business even care? If I open up a business and I'm selling a product, am I supposed to have a problem if not enough women decide they want to use my product? I mean, first of all, what if it's a product that doesn't even appeal to women? I have to be concerned that women don't want to buy my product. And why should I care if African-Americans don't want to buy my product? I mean, I got a product. I mean, obviously, I want as many people to buy it as possible. So if African-Americans aren't buying it and I could do something about that to encourage them to buy it, I'm going to do it on my own. Right? I don't need somebody else saying, hey, get more African-Americans to buy your product. Duh. I want everybody to buy my product. But I'm not going to be upset if for whatever reason... My product is more appealing to Hispanics or whites. What do I care? I mean, if whites are the ones that want to buy my product more, then maybe I'm going to concentrate my advertisement into that demographic because that's who wants my product. But Congress wants to get in there and say, oh, you need to make sure that specific groups are represented among your customer base. Why? Especially when it comes to cryptocurrencies, because The more people who are invested, the more are going to lose money. I mean, they should want fewer African-Americans to be buying Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies because they're just going to end up losing money. So if you claim to care about these people, right, well, why do you want them to lose money? You know, the one demographic, though, that is way overrepresented across racial and gender lines is age. Overwhelmingly, the vast majority of people buying cryptocurrency are young people. And you know, one of these executives said, and I didn't even realize the statistic was this high, but the guy said that 80% of the people who own Bitcoin have never sold any of their Bitcoin, anything. They haven't taken any profits along the way. That is an incredible statistic because imagine how much Bitcoin could drop if those 80% of hodlers who have yet to sell a single Satoshi, what would happen if they started to sell? Because look how much we're down in the last 10 months. We're down, what, 30% in the last 10 months, and they haven't sold. Imagine how much we'd be down if these guys were selling. One day you won't have to imagine it. You're going to be living through it. But the reason so many young people are buying, and in fact, one of the congressmen asked that question to the panel. Why is it, he said, that, So many young people are buying Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies and the older people are not. I mean, they're sticking to more traditional assets and the young people are buying Bitcoin. Now, the answer is obvious because the young people are dumb enough to buy it. I mean, they don't have the experience. They don't have the wisdom, right? They're more easily suckered in to a fad like this, right? And as they get older and learn from their mistakes, well, they're less likely to repeat them. But nobody mentioned that. They all said, well, it's because they're more sophisticated. They're savvy because, you know, they grew up with the internet and the computer. They had the internet in their crib. 
And so, you know, they just love all things digital and they want to be in the digital economy. So they want digital money. And part of that is true. But certainly people in their 40s and their 50s, we have plenty of experience with the Internet. I mean, I started using the Internet when I was still relatively young. I mean, I wasn't a kid, right, but I was in my 30s, right? I'm using the Internet. So it's been a part of my life for a long time. And same thing with a lot of people, baby boomers, you know, they're not afraid of technology. They're not afraid of computers. They're not afraid of cell phones. They're just not dumb when it comes to investing. I mean, some of them are, but they're not just that dumb and they're not falling for this con. In fact, a lot of the people, whenever I see these executives of these big investment banks, when they're talking about Bitcoin, because you know, they're allowing their customers to trade Bitcoin. Whenever they're asked, well, do you own any Bitcoin yourself? They always say, no, I don't own it myself. But who am I to tell my customers what to do? They're big men and women. They can make their own decisions. Well, first of all, hey, you're a broker. You're supposed to tell your customers what to do. That's what a full service broker does. If you think your customers are doing something stupid, you're supposed to tell them. But the problem is, Allowing stupid people to do dumb things can be very lucrative when you're charging all kinds of commissions. So all these big Wall Street firms are not embracing Bitcoin because they believe in it. If they believed in it, they'd be buying it themselves. No, they've got none of it themselves. They're only embracing it because they're making a buck. They're making money off of the trading. And eventually when the whole thing blows up, it's not their money that was lost. They made a bunch of money. It's their customers' money who was lost. You know, it reminds me about that old joke about the customers' yachts. You know, where are all the customers' yachts? Well, they don't have any. All the yachts belong to the brokers. And there's going to be a lot of brokers that are going to be buying yachts with all the money they made off their customers trading cryptocurrencies. Now, they did talk about the volatility of Bitcoin, right? Nobody really questioned the inherent lack of any intrinsic value as being a problem for Bitcoin, which to me is a much bigger problem than the volatility. But they did talk about the volatility. And one of the CEOs basically said, well, you know, the reason Bitcoin is volatile is because it's so new. It's young. It's only been around for, what, 13 years or whatever it is. So, you know, that's why it's volatile. But of course, go back a few years ago, they were telling us that there was no more volatility, that now that we had more people using it, it was more adoption, the price was higher, it was de-risk. They were saying that higher prices actually made it less risky than when it was at lower prices. I mean, these are some of the lies that they've been telling people to get them to buy Bitcoin. And now all of a sudden, well, of course, it's volatile because it's still young. Okay, well, if 12 years is young, 20 years is young. 30 years is young, right? In the scheme of things. So Bitcoin is always going to be volatile. The promise of Bitcoin is that one day it won't be volatile. But the problem is that day is never going to come because they're always going to be able to say, well, it'll lose the volatility at some point in the future. But right now it's going to continue to be volatile. And if it is going to be volatile, then it's not a store of value. It's not an inflation hedge. And obviously it's not going to be used as a medium of exchange. So what is it? It's nothing. Then there was another guy that was complaining. This is one of the CEOs about the fact that we don't have a cryptocurrency ETF. And he thinks that's a bad thing because he pointed out other countries that have Bitcoin ETFs and we don't have them. Look, you know, people can still buy those foreign ETFs. But look, there's two Bitcoin future ETFs that people can buy. In fact, why not buy the Grayscale Trust? It's at a 16% discount. I mean, I didn't like the Grayscale Trust when it was at a premium. 
especially because it had a 2% management fee. But now that it's at a 16% discount, I mean, buy it. I mean, if you like Bitcoin, I mean, I don't want to buy it because I don't want Bitcoin. But if I had Bitcoin, I would sell my Bitcoin and buy the Grayscale Trust because it's a 16% discount. Even if you have to pay 2% a year, that's eight years of fees. So, I mean, maybe your holding period is more than eight years, but you could at least stay in that fund for a while. You can afford to pay the management fee because you're buying it at a 16% discount. The fact that nobody wants it at that 16% discount is proof that we don't even need a Bitcoin ETF because there isn't any real demand for it. Because if there was, the Grayscale Trust would be trading at a premium. In fact, the Grayscale Trust wants to go to a ETF. And if they ever get permission to be an ETF, that discount completely goes away because all of a sudden you can redeem your Grayscale shares at NAV. So if within the next few years, Grayscale becomes an ETF, that entire 16% discount is going to go away. So people should be loading up on it. The fact that they're not shows that all this supposed demand doesn't exist. But one of the reasons that this guy said we need a Bitcoin ETF was to make cryptocurrencies safer for investors to own because they can be diversified. And he compared a crypto ETF to a mutual fund, saying that, hey, when you buy a mutual fund of stocks, you get diversification. You're not just putting all your eggs in one basket, right? You don't just buy one stock. You can buy a portfolio of stocks, and then you can have a professional manager who's doing the research for you so that you don't have to do it yourself. And he said, we need the same thing in crypto, you need to be able to buy a mutual fund of cryptocurrencies where you have an expert who can choose from among the 14,000 cryptos, you know, which ones to buy and when to sell them. And the whole thing is ridiculous because you have no real diversity in a basket of cryptocurrencies because they all rise and fall together. I mean, the whole thing is one big crypto. It's not like some cryptocurrencies are going to go way up and the other ones are going to go way down. I mean, they're all going to go up and down together. Now, yes, some of them will zero out before others. I would agree with that. And, you know, maybe you could find a way to avoid the worst of the cryptos and lose money more slowly. But that's the best you can hope for with a well-managed crypto ETF is that you lose money slower than if you were less diversified. But the diversification isn't going to help you if all you're diversifying is among worthless cryptocurrencies. Then also, the other thing that was ironic is how you've got these crypto executives reassuring Congress that Bitcoin and other cryptos are not private and they're not going to be used by terrorists or drug dealers or money launderers. In fact, one guy talked about how the reason that criminals can be caught when they demand payment in Bitcoin is because it's so traceable. And that if you want to commit a crime, the last thing you'd want to use would be Bitcoin, right? Which, again, undermines the original use case of Bitcoin was that it was private. You did circumvent all of these reporting requirements and that you were transacting anonymously, all these executives are basically saying, uh-uh, it's actually less anonymous than any other form of payment. And if you're a criminal, the worst thing you can use would be Bitcoin. I mean, you're basically destroying the main use case for Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. And I've said that from the beginning because criminals launder their money and 
to them, it doesn't matter if Bitcoin drops 20 or 30 percent between the time they commit a crime and the time they spend the Bitcoin because they're used to paying that much, if not more, to launder their money anyway. But law-abiding citizens aren't going to take that kind of risk because there's no reason to do it. So early on, you did have this demand for Bitcoin coming from that criminal clientele. But now, of course, the rug's been completely pulled out of that use case. The only thing that remains is Bitcoin as a speculative asset. In fact, one of the congressmen did, in fact, make that point. He said, you know, you guys are here and you're talking about all the great things that cryptocurrencies are going to do for reducing transaction costs and making the financial system better and safer and bringing broad prosperity to everybody, all these great things that you're saying. Yet, when I talk to my constituents who own Bitcoin, nobody ever brings up any of that. He said, as far as I'm concerned, the only reason people are buying Bitcoin is because they think they're going to get rich. And he is 100% right on that. That is the only reason people are buying it. It's because they think it's going to go up. Now, you have a small group of hardcore Bitcoiners that really feel they're going to change the world. But of course, they also feel they're going to get rich in the process. If they didn't think they were going to get rich, they wouldn't be so enthusiastic about changing the world. But most of the people couldn't give a damn about changing the world. They just want to be richer themselves. And that's why they're buying Bitcoin. Well, the reality is people are getting poorer as a result of owning Bitcoin, the ones that bought it in the last year. And I think they're going to get a lot poorer in the years ahead. And at some point, there's going to be a mass run for the exit when the 80% of hodlers who have yet to sell a single Satoshi start selling. Now, in addition to Michael Saylor talking about Bitcoin today on Yahoo Finance, I caught Kathy Wood's interview on CNBC. She was also talking about Bitcoin and she was, I think, predicting like 500,000 appreciation per Bitcoin based on her belief of mass adoption by institutions. She says all this institutional money is coming into Bitcoin. And again, looking at that 16% discount on the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, to me, that shows you don't have all this institutional adoption. Look at these futures ETFs. Ever since these ETFs came out, which in theory, right, opened up Bitcoin to a lot of institutions that in the past weren't able to access it. Now they can buy these ETFs that are trading on the exchanges and they're collapsing in price. There is no big demand coming from institutions. It's all being made up. It's part of the story that is being used to push Bitcoin. But in addition to touting Bitcoin, she was also talking the rest of her book and she was saying the most nonsensical stuff about her stocks. And in fact, she was promoting yet another ETF that she's launching, the Transparency ETF. I'm not really sure what stock she's going to own, but I guess it's going to be very transparent what they're doing within the ETF. But she's basically the epitome of this time is different because she's trying to explain to the CNBC audience why all of these tech stocks and these innovative type companies that she is buying, why these crazy prices are justified, right? And according to her, oh, they're not crazy because she is already assuming that the multiples are going to come down. And so her estimates are conservative because even though they have no earnings right now, losing money or maybe tiny amounts of earnings and they're paying these huge premiums, hey, she's not overpaying because she's assuming in her analysis 
that the multiples come down. Yes, because she's also assuming massive growth in earnings. Well, what if that massive growth in earnings that she assumes, what if it never happens? How do you know for sure? If you've got a company that is losing a bunch of money, how do you know that it's ever going to make money? You don't. She doesn't know. She hopes these companies are going to be making money. But the reality is one of the reasons that companies, many of the companies she owns, are growing their revenue is because they're losing money. That's why they're growing their revenue, because they're offering products or services to the consumer for less than the cost of providing those services. And so they're able to sell them. Again, if you're going to sell dollars for 90 cents a piece, you can sell a lot of dollars, but you're not going to make any money. And apparently, Kathy Woods thinks that a lot of these companies will make money because eventually they're going to sell their dollar bills for $1.10. Well, you know what? You're not going to have as many people willing to buy your dollars for $1.10 as you had when you were selling them for $0.90. Cents. That's the reality that she doesn't understand. And the time to buy these stocks, Kathy Woods thinks that you know she's getting her investors in on the ground floor, like these great opportunities. By the time there's great opportunities in these stocks, her funds are going to be shut down, right? When there's a lot of opportunity in a sector, it's not because that sector is represented by all sorts of big ETFs that the general public is buying. No, the general public generally pile in to a sector at its highs. Now, yes, people who bought Kathy Wood's fund, take a look at her top fund, this ARK Innovation Fund. That fund was down 5.3% today, 97.73. The 52-week high was 159.7. So clearly, we are in a bear market in this fund. But if you got into the fund early, when it started in 2014, it was $20, right? That's about what the price was. And not a lot of people were talking about Kathy Wood or any of her funds back in 2014, when it was $20, a lot of people probably didn't even start getting into her funds until they had had a big move. I say in the year 2000 is probably when she got real popular because her fund had moved up to around 100, right? It had gone up 5X, and now all of a sudden, lots of people are putting money into these funds. Well, most of the people who've invested in her fund are underwater because now we're back at 97, which is lower than the fund was in the summer of 2020. But I think before there really is an opportunity in this sector, there's going to be a huge flush out in these stocks. In fact, probably these ARK ETFs, a lot of them are going to end up getting shut down. They may not even exist anymore. Who knows before these stocks bottom out? She is just so oblivious and so overrated as a portfolio manager, you know, it's like she is so wedded in this strategy. And I'm not necessarily saying she's lying. It's very possible she completely believes her own bullshit. In fact, she doesn't even realize that it's bullshit. That's how much she's convinced herself that she's right. She's probably believed a lot of her press because people were singing her praises. Oh, you're a genius. Yes, of course, anybody who loads up on the bubble stocks, and then the bubble goes way up, well, you look like a genius. There's an old Wall Street adage, don't confuse brains with a bull market. And it's even a bigger mistake to confuse brains with a bubble. Because if you're in a bubble and you don't know it, you don't have a lot of brains. 
but you may have a lot of money because you got lucky. Well, a fool and his money are soon parted. And I think the people who have been buying all these funds, well, they're going to part with their money. My advice is that you get out of these funds while you can. Tune out all this nonsense. In fact, if you actually understand anything about investing, anybody who watched the Kathy Wood interview would immediately sell because you would realize how delusional she is. Just like I think the best advertisement to get rid of your Bitcoin is to listen to what Michael Saylor has to say. I mean, the guy is getting more and more desperate as the price of Bitcoin continues to fall and he is increasing his rhetoric, his anti-gold bashing rhetoric to try to proclaim that gold is worthless, that silver is worthless, that Bitcoin has completely replaced any need for any precious metal at any aspect of our economy. And I've always said some of the most ridiculous things that the Bitcoin proponents say are not the positive things they say about Bitcoin, but the negative things that they say about gold. Well, maybe you can't understand how irrational it is if you focus on the Bitcoin rhetoric, but it's much easier when you look at what they're saying about gold, because that is so obviously ridiculous. And if they're so wrong about gold, then it makes sense that they're not right about Bitcoin either.